This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the U.S. is easing sanctions to increase Internet access for Iranians as the government there cracks down amid historic unrest. And a team of former ambassadors recommends big changes to revitalize and modernize the U.S. Foreign Service. Then, for the first time, the White House is hosting a summit for Pacific Island leaders. It comes amid China's efforts to gain influence in the region. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. On September 16th, 22-year-old Masa Amini died in Iran after she was taken into police custody for not properly wearing a hijab. Since then, protests have broken out across the world, but in Iran, protesters are facing a strict government crackdown, including internet blackouts. Jennifer Brody is the U.S. Policy and Advocacy Manager at the nonprofit Access Now. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So what types of internet disruptions are people in Iran facing right now? Uh, so currently the internet is shut down across the entire country, um, including in the capital, Tehran. Um, we saw initially um, blocking of Instagram and WhatsApp in the province where Amasa Amini is from, which only expanded. So on September 23rd, the U.S. announced it would be lifting sanctions to increase Internet access in Iran. What does that do, and, and how does that actually work? <clears throat> sure. So, uh, great question. Um, we're super excited that last week the U.S. Department of the Treasury issued Iran General License, GLD2, a sanctions carve-out, to increase support for internet freedom in Iran. So what does this mean in practice? In practice, this means that US-based companies can offer tools or services like video conferencing, e-learning platforms, automated translation, web maps, user authentication services, and cloud services to people in Iran with confidence that they are not breaking US law. Um, and this is critical, so marginalized people and human rights defenders uh, can use the goods and services they depend on to stay safe and active. And does it actually make a difference, Jennifer? It does. It makes it makes a massive difference. Um, and there's more the U.S. government could do in this space. Well, I um, wanted to, to ask you that. What more can the U.S. government do to, to make sure that the Internet is accessible in a country like Iran? Sure. Um, one would be ensuring that sanctions accord with, with human rights in both scope and purpose. So this means aligning with the principles of necessity, proportionality, and legality. So big picture here, we're fighting for a human rights-based approach to sanctions rather than a technocratic or economic approach. Uh, secondly, the US government could provide greater certainty for companies that policies will not change rapidly, right? As we know, companies are very risk-averse. They would rather over-comply than get in trouble with uh, the U.S. government. Uh, number three, we encourage the U.S. government to hold actual consultations with civil societies and companies um, in, in working through their sanctions policy. Unfortunately, the sanctions space is usually very hush-hush and closed. There's not much room for civil society input, so we would love to see the process be much more transparent. 
Um, in addition, it would be helpful for the U.S. government to issue companies specific licenses to operate in companies. This could give companies even greater confidence that uh, they won't get in trouble. You know, you mentioned this before, that the Iranian regime specifically targeted Instagram and WhatsApp because of their popularity in, in, in Iran. They're both owned by Facebook. So is there a role for social media companies to play in supporting protesters in these authoritarian regimes? Yes, 100%. There's a, there's a huge role. Um, you know, social media companies are accountable to international human rights law um, uh, and also the UN guiding principles on, on business and human rights. So we, we call on the social media platforms um, to do right by the people of Iran. So this isn't the first time that Iran has used internet blackouts as a tool to control protests. Is this part of a growing trend among authoritarian regimes? I guess because it's so effective. Yes, 100%. At Access Now, we lead the global Keep It On co coalition to combat internet shutdowns around the world. So this is certainly a growing trend, unfortunately. Um, and especially we're seeing an increasing trend um, in the lead up to elections. Authoritarian regimes are, are shutting off the internet to su suppress dissent. Um, and as we know, um, shutting off the internet has right not only egregious human rights repercussions, uh, it also has very negative economic uh, repercussions for countries as well. And, and how else is, is your organization Access Now helping in Iran? Um, we, so um, my colleagues who lead our, our MENA program are in touch with local civil society organizations. Um, also, my colleagues in the U.S. were in touch with the Iranian diaspora to help elevate um, the calls to protect um, human rights defenders in, in the country. All right. Well, Jennifer, we'll watch and see what, what happens with those protests. Thanks so much for being on the program. Uh, thank you very much for the interview. Have a good one. Coming up, a group of former ambassadors wants the U.S. to revitalize its foreign service. Find out what they recommend next on Government Matters. We'll be right back. A new report from a team of former ambassadors lays out a blueprint for modernizing the U.S. Foreign Service. Michael Polt is Arizona State University ambassador in residence and a former U.S. ambassador to Serbia and Montenegro and Estonia. Mr. Ambassador, welcome to the program. Good morning. Very nice to be here with you. So this new report is called the American Diplomacy Project Phase 2. What was in Phase 1? Several colleagues of mine uh, got together at uh, the Belfer Center at Harvard University last year and came up with a set of recommendations, uh, 10 recommendations, in fact, to help modernize the U.S. diplomatic service. Out of those 10 recommendations, uh, uh, two of my former colleagues approached me uh, at ASU a few months ago, uh, earlier on this year, and said, we'd like to take this now to a, uh, a phase two, a, an implementable set of blueprints that we can actually go ahead and propose to put into action to, to help modernize the service that our former colleagues are um, now serving. So what, did you, what would you say are the major shortcomings of the U.S. diplomatic corps that this report would address? 
I want to be careful when I say shortcomings because we are very respectful and uh, deeply appreciative of our current serving colleagues who are uh, doing critical and important work for our nations. Uh, what we've done is we've taken four of the 10 recommendations from the Harvard Center, uh, Belfer Center report from last year and identified four core areas which are particularly uh, important to focus on. One is the mission and mandate of the Foreign Service, the leadership of the Foreign Service, the leadership of our whole of government effort in advancing U.S. diplomatic efforts. Then we talked about uh, personnel and human resources uh, availability, training of the human resource of the uh, diplomatic service. And finally, very, very importantly, the creation of a reserve force similar to our military reserves that, that allows the Foreign Service to have a surge capacity to provide additional resources when there's additional needs. Such you, as you know, I, I wanted to ask you about that specifically, this creation of a National Diplomatic Reserve Corps. Tell me how that would work. As you know, right now we have no surge capacity. If, if there is an ex exceptional need, in our service. We basically have to rob Peter to pay Paul. We have to go ahead and take from existing resources and existing diplomatic missions to go ahead and staff up an ex extraordinary effort, such as the visa issuance in the Afghanistan in the Afghanistan withdrawal and various other kinds of contingencies, be they in the Ukraine uh, crisis or whatever. Uh, what we're trying to do is to, to, to propose a, a, a blueprint for the creation of a fairly modest, but nevertheless significant 1,000-person uh, contingent of capacity that could be ready and put into place just like our military reserves are when a surge need is identified and to go ahead and provide that capacity. It would be taken up, it would be composed by both former uh, foreign service officers who already have a certain skill set within the foreign affairs and the foreign affairs family, as well as outside specialists who bring additional capacity to the foreign service that is so important in a 21st century setting. So another component uh, of the report is enhancing the authority, responsibility, and accountability of U.S. ambassadors worldwide. Tell me a little bit more about that. What would that involve? Mimi, you know, that is really, really a critical element of the entire effort. And that is, it's all about leadership and trust in leadership and trust in professionalism in leadership. What we want to make sure of that uh, as we put our ambassadors in place as our leaders in the field in our nation's foreign policy, that they are both equipped with the training, with a professional background, with the experience, the resources, and the authorities and responsibilities and accountability for leading in the field. Every one of our ambassadors gets a letter from the President of the United States. I received those uh, twice during my career in which the president points out, these are your responsibilities, madam or Mr. Ambassador. This is what I want you to do to lead all the US government efforts in your country of responsibility. We need to make sure that the people we put into those places are the ones best equipped to lead, to lead that effort. You know, the report also proposes, quote, a stronger relationship between America's diplomats and the American public. So why does that relationship need to be strengthened and how would you do it? You know, the American people are, are all of us working in government 
are our ultimate bosses, our supervisors. They are the, the stakeholders in America's foreign policy. And I think that it, it's certainly in my 35-year career in the Foreign Service, I, I, I wish I would had more opportunity to relate to my fellow citizens those things that were that I was working on and make and take in their commentary on how our foreign policy should be conducted and making sure that there's a connection between what we do for America in far-flung places around the world and what Americans consider important to them in terms of what our foreign policy should be. And we've had if we've had various efforts in the past to do this on an ad hoc basis. What we're doing with our blueprints is to go ahead and systematize this and make it a mandatory part of our responsibility to connect to the American people who are the stakeholders of our foreign policy. All right, Ambassador Michael Polt, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you very much, me. Pleasure to be here. We'll be right back with more Government Matters coming up next. Stay with us. Leaders from Pacific Island nations are in Washington for the first ever U.S. Pacific Island Country Summit. Michael Walsh is an affiliate at the Center for Australian, New Zealand, and Pacific Studies at Georgetown University. Michael, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mimi. So why convene the summit for the first time now? It's a very good question. I mean, when you look back at the late 90s, early 2000s, you already saw Japan getting involved in the region. Australia and New Zealand have been involved for quite some time. China has been getting involved. Um, the U.S. is having this, this meeting right now, and one of the questions that's been asked, is it kind of Johnny-come-lately? Is it too late? Um, I think not. I mean, obviously, we have an opportunity to re-engage the region and, and prioritize the region, but it is a good question, why is it happening now? How important are these Pacific Island countries to the interests of the U.S., especially given China's rise and, and a potential conflict with China? So China is one way to frame it, so it depends. When you look at why does the Pacific Islands matter to the United States, there's multiple reasons it matters. When you look at the census, I mean, we have almost 900,000 Americans identifying as being Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander as one race or a combination of races. We have tens of thousands of COFA migrants living in the United States. We have many COFA foreigners uh, living in the United States who are here studying, working. So it matters on that people-to-people -people level, and that's where you kind of have to start. And that's what the Pacific Island leaders want it to start at. However, clearly we're in major power competition with Russia and China now. And this region is strategically important to China. China has been trying to make a concerted effort to get leverage, influence, power, and now perhaps military basing in the region. And what are Pacific leaders looking to get from, um, from the United States? Well, part of that's laid out in the Blue Pacific strategy. So there's a strong regionalism that exists within the Pacific Islands. Uh, that regionalism has been under strain lately, um, but they have a Pacific Islands Forum, and that brings together the leaders from these various countries. And these leaders have sort of charted this new strategy, uh, the Blue Pacific Strategy, that kind of lays out uh, what they would like to see happen for their region over the next couple of decades. And now at the White House, what they want to do is get support for those objectives, their objectives, whereas the U.S., while wanting to support those objectives, also has its own national interests at stake. 
So the White House invited uh, the Solomon Islands, despite the country's recent security pact with China. Initially, they had not invited the Cook Islands. That changed. Tell me about the invitation list and who's getting invited, who's getting left out? It's been sort of a controversy and uh, it's sort of a conundrum as well. I mean, we had reporters who were reaching out asking who's on the guest list as of yesterday. Um, so the guest list uh, has been a, a point of debate. I think there's some concern if you look at um, some of the, the rankings for freedom in the world. Some of the Pacific Island countries don't score particularly well on those rankings. And so there's been some concern about why is the U.S. inviting some of those leaders to the United States. I had an opportunity to speak with the ambassador from Palau on the sidelines of the UNGA um, last week. And when we talked, one of the things that the ambassador said is it would be a huge mistake not to invite them because we have to engage them in order to have an outcome for the region. You know, we talked about how um, the U.S. kind of initially has been neglecting the Pacific countries. How have their attitudes towards the United States changed, if at all? Well, for decades, the U.S. has been neglecting the Pacific Island countries, um, and that's been a, a perennial problem. I mean, we had people at the end of the Cold War who were scholars and fellows in, in the States who were commenting on this, saying this is a huge mistake. You know, the end of the Cold War provided an opportunity for the U.S. to, to deepen those relationships, but we overlooked them for a very long time. I think there is a degree of resentment um, on the part of some Pacific Islanders that the U.S. doesn't put more emphasis on relations in the region. I mean, they provide us with an incredible amount of resources, both on the national security side, but also on the cultural side. And those are often overlooked and devalued. Um, but I think that when you look at the leaders, the people who are coming to the White House, they're realistic. They understand how big power politics works. And what's interesting is when you look at the region, it might be a small region, but they, they kind of punch above their weight when it comes to diplomacy. You know, uh, back in July during the Pacific Island Forum, the U.S. announced it will reopen um, embassies across the Pacific. It's going to reestablish uh, the Peace Corps uh, operations. What has the reaction been? And is that, you know, is it too little too late? That's yet, yet to be seen. Um, it's interesting. I mean, will the U.S. lose the Pacific? No. The U.S. can't lose the Pacific. We're a Pacific nation. I mean, when people think about the U.S., I mean, look at where Guam and CNMI and, and American Samoa are positioned in the world. They're positioned in the Pacific. So the U.S. is a Pacific nation. The U.S. can't lose the Pacific. Um, what the U.S. could do, though, is open the door to other countries coming into the Pacific that have interests that aren't aligned with our own interests. And these are authoritarian powers like China. That's the concern. Um, when you're talking about the embassies and a lot of things, one of the things that I think people have to note is that Congress has played a very active role in pushing for a lot of these things. I mean, when we talk about legislative efforts, we talk about things that have happened when it comes to the embassy specifically, we've had members of Congress come out publicly and call on the, the U.S. government to expand our diplomatic presence in the region. The question is, what do those embassies look like? I mean, is that a full-time embassy? Is that a brick-and-mortar embassy where we're going to have somebody sitting there who's actually engaging in the region? Or is that somebody who's going to fly in and fly out? And that's what the Pacific Island leaders are waiting to see. I want to ask you about climate change real quick because, of course, it's affecting everybody uh, around the globe. What's the effect in the Pacific on these islands specifically? It's existential for some of them. I mean, and that's what you hear over and over again. Uh, you have countries like Tuvalu and the Marshall Islands coming up publicly and calling for, for stronger action from the U.S. and other developed countries because they recognize it's an existential threat to their countries. 
So a lot of the focus in the last week has been obviously on the Marshall Islands announcement on the negotiations on COFA and, and breaking those off potentially for a short term. Um, you know, this event has given them an opportunity from a negotiating standpoint to, to do that with maximum effect. Um, but the nuclear legacy is a huge issue. But putting the nuclear legacy issue aside, climate change is the regional issue. That's the, the issue the region cares about most. Major power competition is secondary for them. Their existence as countries, as and, people, And what are they matters. looking for from the United States regarding climate change? What do they need from us? So uh, a couple things. I mean, obviously, climate adaptation financing is a huge thing that they need. They need to have mitigations against the effects of climate change. I think they're realistic. They understand that they can't stop what's happening. So what they need is they need the ability to counter it. And so when you're looking at low-lying islands in the Pacific, I mean, you have to then look at infrastructure development programs that cost a lot of money. And these countries are underdeveloped. And so they need funding to be able to do that. They need innovation. They need programs. They need all of that. So I think resources is a big part of it. All right, Michael, thanks so much for being on the program. Hey, thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargis. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, 
the use of uh, understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.